Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, sleazy, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. If you want to identify gaps in your competitor's marketing strategy and therefore identify opportunities to grow yourself, conducting a social media competitive analysis could be the way to go. So my guest today is Cassandra Schwartz. She has eight years of experience in marketing with charities and more recently tech companies such as Microsoft and Frontdesk. She's now the senior product marketing manager for Rival IQ, which is a social media marketing analytics tool. Uh, so I have to confess that analyzing competition is not my biggest strength. So this discussion with Cassandra was actually a very good reminder that it could still be a very valuable exercise. So in this episode, we're going to go through a step-by-step -step process to conduct a social media competitive analysis to identify gaps in your competitors' offering and therefore identify opportunities for you to stand out from the crowd. As usual, let me know what you think. Don't be afraid to send me emails if you want to. Send me questions. I'll be quite uh, fast to answer. Cassandra, thank you so much for being on the show. I don't know if, you, if you've ever done that, but when you search for project management software or Basecamp on Google Ads, on Google only, you would have literally four or five competitors showing up on Google as saying, oh, we are better than Basecamp, or we do that better than Basecamp, and all of that, right? And to me, it's my very own view on it, but to me, it, it really seems like those brands have already failed because they're just comparing themselves with Basecamp, and Basecamp will never do that. They will never put an ad saying, you know, we are better than X, Y, and Z. They don't need that. They just have their own journey. So in my career, I've met many people obsessed about competition, obsessed about their competitors. You know, they would follow their every move. They would, every time a new feature would come up from their competitor's website, they would worry about it and try to, to create the exact same feature and basically always be one step behind. And the reason why I'm telling you all of that is because you're the company working for, uh, Revol IQ is a social media marketing analytics with some advanced competitive analysis and other tools like this. So you're pretty well versed into the, the competitive analysis and benchmarking space. So the first question I have for you is, can you convince me that competitive analysis matters? Well, first, I want to go back to your the example you have of people searching um, and they're searching for a specific company and then they come up with all of this competitive advertising. And when I talk about competitive analysis and benchmarking um, and making sure you're watching your competitors. I'm not talking about that stuff because I cannot stand that. I cannot stand when I Google a company and the first thing that comes up is comparing that to whatever other company because it does feel like you're just trying to go after um, these people who are clearly looking for a very specific thing. Um, and sometimes people word it in a way that's like, it makes it sound really crappy. Like, they're already bad mouthing a company that you're just looking for, or you're a customer. And so you're a big fan. And a lot of us use Google's search bar as where we drop our URLs in. And so when you put in basecamp.com, it 
pulls up a search and somebody has bought some ads to say, oh, no, Basecamp is crappy. You should be using ours. And I, I don't like that. I am not advocating for that when we talk about competitive. What I advocate is the understanding of your competitors and what they're doing. And it's not to go copy them. You should not be copying your competitors. You should be looking for the gaps in their messaging, in their product, and where you can serve that their customers are not being served. And so, you know, when I look at other competitors, sometimes it's crappy UI. I'm not going to go say, hey, our UI is better than um, so-and-so's. I'm going to make sure that I talk about how great our experience is, how easy it is. Um, when we do case studies, I'm talking about how you can jump into the product and you know exactly what you're doing. Um, that is how I, I differentiate. But I'm not going to call out a competitor uh, because that's shady. And that is that is um, your customers see that or your potential customers and they recognize it for what it is and it puts a bad taste in their mouth and you're starting off on the wrong foot. So I do not advocate for that. But you need to know what your competitors are doing. Um, I have uh, worked for several SaaS companies and um, oftentimes my role is to come in and reevaluate the brand. Let's take a look at the brand and say, okay, what is it we're currently saying about ourselves? What are our competitors saying? And where is there a gap that we can dive into? Um, and so I'll use Rival IQ as an example. Um, I have been at Rival IQ since uh, September of last year. And when I came in, um, we sounded like every other competitive analysis, social benchmarking um, software company. And so I came in and I was like, hey, we don't want to sound like everybody else. Everybody talks about getting knowledge and how you can have this knowledge and suddenly knowing about your competitors will make things different. It's not the knowledge that is helpful. It's the action you take from that. Um, and so we have changed our messaging based on that to talk to our customers about the actions they can take. And that's how I've used competitive insight to make changes. So we'll go, we'll go in more in depth about that and how exactly listeners can, can do the same thing that you've done by, by uh, looking at competition and, and looking at gaps. One thing though that springs to mind when you say we see gaps in the competitors, let's say website and our product, and we know that their UI is, is, is bad. So therefore we can leverage our own customer experience. My obviously customer experience is, is, and the UI is very important for, for any product company and, and customers obviously like product that work, but I'm just, I'm just arguing, I'm just thinking about something here. If you find gap, some gaps in a competitor's environment, like their product or their website, it doesn't necessarily mean that your customer will care about that, right? Oh, sure. So does it mean that you also, you also need to take, to listen to your customers and to understand them and as well as the market that you are in, right? Oh, yes. You need to be talking to your customers and you need to talk to the people who aren't your customers. Um, either they're, um, you know, your competitors' customers or you, they're apathetic and they don't care about that type of product at all. But you need to have those conversations so that you understand um, what the problems are that they have, where you can serve them, where others are not serving them. But that's where, like, I really enjoy listening to what people are saying about my competitors because it gives me an understanding. You know, if they're, if a competitor's product is 
is good, maybe not outstanding, but their customer service and how they relate to their um, their customers and that community that they've built, that tells me a lot. And I'm not going to be able to get in between that relationship. Um, and so I need to look at it from a different standpoint. And maybe I'm not going to go after their customers because they have that relationship. Maybe I'm going to go after somebody else's or people who have never thought to use the product. Fantastic. Okay. So before we dive in, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit and explain a few things to to the people listening. So the first thing they need to know is that I owe you a lot. Um, <laughs> and I, I genuinely mean it. Uh, to tell the story, a few months ago now, I, I think it was on Slack, on f- several Slack channels, I... I had a few interviews recorded with a few people, uh, a few marketers for the podcast. I kind of had a concept for the podcast. I knew I wanted to, to, to promote good marketing, to fight bad marketing, the shady manipulative marketing, but I had no clue on how to name this podcast. I generally was blank. I, I, I couldn't find anything good. So I asked around and literally the first suggestions, the first suggestion that came in was from you. Um, <laughs> No, genuinely, it, it was. Yeah, and it was everyone hates marketers. And as soon as I read it, I was like, okay, that's it. I don't need any other suggestions. So once again, thank you so much for that. Uh, I really appreciate it. It was really great. So um, I remember when you sent out this survey asking um, for ideas. And I was sitting in a coffee shop. Um, <laughs> and what had actually happened that day is that that morning, the lady sitting next to me in this coffee shop started a conversation. Um, and she saw what was up on my screen and she's like, Oh, like, what do you do? And I tell her, Oh, I'm in marketing. And she went off on me. She was like, marketers are awful. And that is what's wrong with this world. And, um, they're liars and they do awful things and, um, they follow me around and I don't want them to follow me around. Um, and this was not the first time that's happened to me. I've had many of those conversations. Um, but it was like, it had just happened. And then your survey came out and reading what your description was and the purpose of it. Um, that's how I came up with that because I, at that moment I was like, yeah, everyone hates us. We are awful people according to the general public. And that is something that like, I can't stand. I don't want that to be how we're thought of. Um, and so it was really happy to see uh, a very timely message um, that someone else um, is trying to uh, promote more positive aspects or uh, appropriate behavior for marketers. There's um, the interview I did with uh, Ran Fishkin recently that was posted a few weeks ago. We talked about this in more detail and I asked him, you know, why do you think everyone hates us? And he had this answer that nobody really told me before, which is you notice only the bad marketers and bad marketing and good marketing goes unnoticed because it's good, right? So good marketing is a good product that you use all the time. Good marketing is a website that is so easy to use. You come back to it often. Good marketing is feeling understood by the company and feeling that they talk the same language than you. So I think to those people, I, 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 I genuinely don't necessarily when people ask me what I do, I don't get this, those comments, maybe because they're scared, because I'm French. <laughs> but um, I know that a lot of people have those comments. And yeah, I think, that's, I, th- I think that's the right way to answer by saying you, kind of, you only notice the bad ones. And there are plenty of good ones, right? And I think that's a really good positive view on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, even as marketers, like we pay attention and we notice 
um, when we get really great email um, or um, a headline that grabs our attention, maybe we save it as inspiration, but it's the really bad emails or the really bad ads that we screenshot and we send to people and we're like, oh my gosh, did you see this? Um, and, it, you know, it's very much the old school, um, the car salesman ads, like I don't, I don't watch television anymore, so I don't have an idea if they still do it. But I remember growing up, the worst television ads were always the local car dealership. Um, but you would talk about it. You would talk about how crappy the guy yelling on the screen with the big, bright yellow or orange or red um, lettering and block. Um, I mean, so it's a it's a we want to do better, but we also want to grab attention. And so we have plenty of marketers who are like, well, it works before. And so I'm going to keep doing it, even though it makes every other person cringe and therefore hate all of us. Absolutely. Um, we have something in common as well. When I went to study in the US for a year, I went to the same university than you, uh, which is quite fun as well, because it's, it's in Kansas, in Wichita, Kansas. So it's not like it's not the most popular university in the world. So it's funny to see that. Um, so we talked about that before. Now you're the senior product man marketing manager for uh, Real IQ. And before that, as you mentioned, you had multiple marketing uh, positions with Microsoft, Frontdesk, uh, and others. Um, so you have plenty of experience. And I know we talked about uh, we talked about it before. You kind of have the same view than me in in terms of like what I would qualify of bad marketing. So can you give us a few more examples of in today's world, you know, what annoys you the most in marketing? Um, <laughs> well, so one thing that I can't stand is other marketers telling um, you the best practices, like you should be doing X. Um, and they make blanket statements that that is what everybody should be doing. Um, and that really pisses me off because your customer is different than theirs. And what your product is, is somewhat different in some aspect. Um, it, you know, your channels, like you may be on the same channels, but when you post on Facebook, it may be a different time um, or a different type of um, imagery or content. Um, so I cannot stand blanket best practices. I love recommendations. So if you have something you're just starting off, um, like in social media, you're just starting on Twitter and you use those as a, hey, I'm going to test and post this many times a day. These are the types of content I'm going to try. I'm going to try these hashtags. That's great. Test it. But don't be like, okay, well, this blog told me I need to post on Facebook at 8 p.m. on Tuesdays because that's when, when I'll get great engagement. They don't know your audience. Um, and actually, if you're, if you're doing that, you probably don't know your audience. So that, that is from a marketing to marketing standpoint, that is what makes me so mad. And the um, thing that makes me mad in general from marketing to consumers is how we um, treat specifically in B2B, we forget their people. We, When it comes to B2B, we try to make it about talking to a business. But you're not selling to a business. You're selling to a person. And so this, the way we talk to them shouldn't really be that different. At the end of the day, the person that sits behind that computer has a problem they need to solve. And, you know, your product might not be super sexy. It might be cloud solution, but they still have a problem and you can talk to them like a human. Um, you don't need to get super technical. You don't have to keep it dry. You can tell a story and bring storytelling in 
it's just as compelling as it would be to in a B2C world. Um, so that that is my when it comes to how we treat people, when it comes to B2B, they're still humans. Talk to them like they're human. To go back to your first point about best practices, uh, we talked about that a little bit with David Darmanin from uh, from Hotjar, and we were mm -hmm. making the point that there are two things. So exactly as you said, the blanket best practices saying that you know you need to post every Tuesday at 8 p.m. on Facebook. Um, there is a difference between best practice and first principles in a sense that first principles are things that we never change, such as you know people are attracted by you know food. Uh, danger and other things, right? And those kind of stuff won't change in the next 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, or, 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 or even more than that, because that's how we are wired. So therefore, there are a few things that, you know, will always work and will, we, we never change. So that, I think that's one thing that people should be aware of is that when they read something that they should do, they should ask, ask themselves, will this be true in five years or even one year? Or with this change. And I think that's a good way to, to differentiate the two. Uh, because yeah, usually best practices, you should avoid them. And that's the best practice. No, that's the first principle. <laughs> avoid best practices for sure. Totally agree. Right. So we agree on everything. That's not good. We need to disagree on a few things. Um, how do you think marketers can make the, can make the web a better place outside of what we mentioned? Oh, I'm. Um... So a big part, I think, when it comes to how we as people interact with um, the web is we want personalization. And so, um, you know, I don't mind getting an ad that speaks to me. Um, there um, was a conversation recently on one of the Slack channels I'm on um, about this ad um, that people were seeing and it was super customized. It was based on where you were located, where you, uh, what we guess is probably your hometown. Um, and, um, whether or not you are a son or a daughter and like it, there was a relationship there. Um, and it, people were like really impressed, um, because they saw themselves and it was, they felt it was customized to them. Those are the ads that don't annoy people because it's timely. Um, and it speaks to them. And, um, as marketers, we, we get lazy. Let's just be really honest though. Um, you know, to create an ad like that, you're talking about, um, uh, hundreds of different combinations between different, um, states and, uh, your relationships and those things. Um, and that's a lot of work. That's a lot of design work. That's a lot of, um, backend in setting it up in whatever, um, ad, um, your ad platform you're using. But it's worth it because as a consumer, I am, I see that and I'm engaged and I notice it. And then I talk about it because people talk about those things. Um, you mentioned earlier about how, um, good advertising, um, you don't notice it as advertising, um, because it's relevant when you see something that you were just talking about to somebody else and you're like, Oh, I wonder about doing this and you get an ad for it in the next day or so it doesn't bother you because you're like, oh, hey, I just was talking about going kayaking. I want to go try that. Um, and so when we can take our web um, experiences and make it personalized to that person, when that person comes to your site um, and they're a customer and they're dropping onto your SaaS site, what are you doing? Are you sending them right into your product? Do you give the, them the option of like, hey, you can go into the product or we thought you, this content would make sense for you? Like, what are you doing that makes it feel like it's built for them? And with our technology, you can do it and it doesn't cost that much, but it is a little bit of extra work. Um, and you have to know your customer. 
And so some of those things, we get a little lazy and we take the easy way out and we just are like, we'll make one page and it fits everyone, but it doesn't fit everyone. And it's not a great experience. So I have many things to tell you about this point. All, all very good point. I remember reading this article recently about how marketers and ads in particular can become very creepy, right? <laughs> Which is a very personal thing. And I think that's something that's going to get worse and worse with personalization coming in. A few people on the, on the thread were complaining about the fact that the ads were way too personal. Like um, the fact that they, uh, I, I think it's from Optimizely, they were starting to share a homepage depending on, on which company you are working from. So if this, oh, you work for Oracle, then your homepage, the homepage, when you go to optimizing.com actually shows, you know, oh, you're, 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 you're one of the Oracle people. And here is a, a, a case study just for you. The, the line between effectiveness and like, personalization and creepiness can be very, very thin, uh, and almost non-existent. So I'm just, I wonder if you had any thought on that and the creepiness of it as well, um, and how marketers can tackle it. Oh, yes. I mean, the first time that I got um, a marketing automation software was this really odd experience for me during the sales process. Um, you know, as a normal person, went and looked at their site several times, looked at lots of different content, downloaded different things. And then when we met with a salesperson, he's going back and he's showing me all the things that he got to see and notifications he got when I went and did X or Y. Um, and at the moment I was like, wow, this is creepy. Like it's like stalker stuff. But then I was like, oh, wow, like all of that data, like what can I give you that's better? And so I think that's where like you have to, you're, you're, you're walking a very fine line, um, between stalker and appropriate, um, relationship building. And, um, that's where you need to understand your customer and how much they want to interact um, I'm probably like as a strong marketer in SaaS who really cares about personalization, I'm probably more open to it than say, um, my mother, um, she is a little creeped out by the internet and a little bit worried about privacy laws. Um, and so how much personalization happens for her, um, needs to be different than me. Um, but that's a customer thing. Do you know your customer well enough to know how much they want to share, um, the flip side is, is that like, if you get too broad, if you don't do any type of personalization, if you start showing um, my mom ads for something on the East Coast, and she's on the West Coast, like, she's not going to enjoy that experience. Um, there was a study, and I can't remember um, what who, who did it, I'll have to look it up. Um, but it was about um, how uh, people that um, use ad blockers actually would say that they don't mind when they see ads that are relevant to them. And so you have to take that line to understand what is relevant. Um, you know, for advertising for Rival IQ, we like are very specific about the types of companies um, that we're looking for, the types of marketers. Um, and so we're serving up content that's specifically for them. Um, we recently ran a campaign around um, how media companies are utilizing social media. And we ran an ad campaign that was very targeted. Um, and um, the click-throughs tell me that they appreciated that because they went down and downloaded the content. 
Um, they weren't, we weren't getting you know, marked as spam or not relevant. Um, and so I think it's about how much. Now, I didn't go use people's name. Um, I, you know, wasn't saying their specific company. I wasn't like, hey, you're at CNN and you need to look at this. Um, but we might drop a couple of names and target based on those companies. Um, so that's, it's definitely a line you have to, um, skirt, but, um, I wouldn't shy away from personalization just because some people are like, oh, it's a little creepy. Yeah, I agree. Those are good examples. My, my thoughts on this are as long as your customers or your leads have given you those information, such as let's say if they accept to give you when they want to receive emails instead of daily, they want to receive them weekly. Uh, they gave you their preference in terms of what they want to receive in their emails. Maybe they're more interested in SMS marketing than email marketing, for example. They gave you their email address, their name and last name and where they live, let's say. I think it's okay to use that in your marketing to, to make sure that you personalize your offer. Now, I think when it gets creepy, regardless of the customer, the type of customer you have is when you use sensitive information against their will, such as, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, data enrichment platform at the minute that enables you to get a lot of information from just an email. Uh, I would say if you're able to know how many kids they have without them telling you in the first place, I'm mentioning that on the ad. I think that's a no, no, for example, you know, I mean, Oh yes, that would creep me out. <laughs> yeah. That, I think that would creep anybody out. So, uh, I have yet to define to find kind of a, a, a set of rules to make sure that your your marketing isn't creepy. But regardless of it, it will still need to be personalized per, uh, as per your customer and what they want. But that's an interesting subject and that really springs a lot of ideas in my mind. I think that's something that needs to be addressed because a lot more people are mentioning it now than, than before. Right. So we talked about the, the, the marketing bullshit. I'd like to dive in back into what we started to talk about at the start of the, at the start of the podcast. So I'm genuinely not very good at competitive research. I've never really done it because it never really interested me. I always thought that we didn't need that. So, but I'm really curious to know how we could do it and how I could do it in the future. So we talked about, about it, uh, before together. And you said that you think that marketers do competitive research the wrong way, right? So let's get into a sort of a step-by-step -step guide uh, that listeners can can literally use that uh, use in their business tomorrow or even today. So what will be the first step of of this competitive research task? <laughs> I mean, the first step is who are your competitors, and this is where I think um, some marketers will get it wrong because they'll only pick the top names, and um, you know, I'll I'll use. Uh, CPG for an example, um, cause it's safe to talk about that type of thing. Um, so, you know, you have a local soda company, it's regional. Um, and, um, when I'm talking to them about who they're looking at for, um, as far as like social media performance, they'll mention the, the Jones soda, the Coca Cola's. And it's like, well, are you really competing against them? Do you, do you really think that, um, that that is the one to go after. That might be aspirational and you should certainly have an aspirational list and we can talk more about that later. But you need to know when it when the person walks into the local Whole Foods and they're looking at the um you know off the wall sodas, who are those people? Who are you coming up against right at that moment? Um you know, for rival, um we could say Sisimos is a competitor, but we're not on the same level. 
that's a huge company. They target, you know, enterprise level um, and the cost associated with it is is large. Um, we're not competing against them. And so it's great for me to know what they're what they're doing and what they're talking about. Um, it's really fun to read their reports. But I'm not going to look at them as a direct competitor because when it comes down to it, if my person, uh, my potential customer has a budget for them, I'm probably going to say you should go try that because it's going to be a broader um, and deeper experience for them. Um, so who are your competitors? Who is talking to your customers? Um, and then start to look at how they're talking. Um, the first thing I do is um, look at the language that they're using. Where are they talking to people? Um, and, you know, I focus a lot on social. Social is a big part of um, my experience. But you don't just do that. Like you look at like, what are the the emails? What are the blogs? Um, you know, where might they be showing up? When you Google them, what happens? Um, if you Google them and look for comparisons, I'm not a big fan of that, but I want to see, are they putting themselves out there and trying to put themselves against that? Um, you mentioned earlier about the, you know, uh, comparisons and putting yourself against, I cannot stand when companies talk about parity. Um, I don't care about parity. I can't sell against parity. Oh, we have the same feature as this other company. Why would you want to sell against that? Um, you need to sell against um, either the experience or the differentiators. What makes you better? Um, and unless you know your competitors, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, and when you do complete a whole competitive analysis, it's not just for marketing. Um, if you're in SaaS, you have a sales team. Um, and you need to be able to educate them and enable them to do this. Um, I, as a product marketer, I have to turn around to product and be like, hey, we should be doing this because nobody else is doing this. And this is what I hear from our competitors, um, customers, or from our own customers. Um, so start with how they're talking. What are they saying? I mentioned earlier that when I came into Rival, I looked at our competitors and all of them were talking about knowledge, the knowledge you'd get. That's great. I want to know more things. But at the end of the day, as a marketer, I need to be able to take action. I need to know what I need to do with that knowledge. And data is really overwhelming for us. Um, I'm not a data scientist. I went into marketing because I didn't want to do math. Um, it's not really working out for me. Um, I end up doing a lot of math and running a lot of reports. Um, but that's why I went into it. I wanted to do communications. I wanted to brand. I wanted to connect with people. Um, I didn't want to go into finance or accounting. Um, but you have to you have to have that data. And so what do you do with it? And that's where the insights that you gain and understanding how you then take that into action. Um, and so that's how I rebranded Rival IQ um, based on that competitive knowledge. So let's go back to it. So you, you, you said a lot of things and, and, and we need to <laughs> dive in. We, we need to dive in into another level of details. So the first step is to understand who your competitors are, the direct competitors, the one who genuinely your customers would consider um, to buy from instead of you. Right. Here is one thing, though, and this is why competitive research, by definition, to me, might be missing something. Um, you probably heard of the of the job to be done methodology, right? And the the, the example would be when you buy a milkshake, go uh, and go to work with it in your car, and you drink it on the way. 
let's say you're McDonald's and you have this milkshake that you want to sell. Your direct competitors are not necessarily Burger King and Eddie Rockets or any other fast food restaurant. Your direct competitor might very well be any other thing that this person might use to make her journey more pleasant to work, right? So this is what I'm always worried about when I hear about competition is that it doesn't necessarily mean people, companies selling the same product. It means companies selling things that does the same job. So would you consider those in your analysis usually, or is it outside? Um, you know, it really depends on what I'm selling. Um, I think, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, one of the things you're coming up against is your competitors or somebody talking to your same audience, or you're coming up against apathy. Um, you know, um, uh, I've worked at a couple different SaaS companies, um, and a previous one, our problem wasn't getting them to buy the software. If we talked to them, we could, we could share that, like why they should, the benefits of saving time and ease. But it was the apathy of like, well, I can just do it all on paper. Why do I need a software to do it? Like, it costs me nothing. It takes time, whatever. But it was apathy of like, you have everything on paper. What happens if something happens? Like, so a car runs into your gym or there's a fire like but that was the apathy we're coming up against um and so that's not going to come in in a competitive analysis but that will come up when you are um researching your customers or your potential customers yeah so about that sorry to cut you but about that do you think this task is before you pick on competitors would you start typically in this project did you start talking to customers and, and potential customers first and then pick the competitors Oh yes. Oh yes. So I want to, I want to know my customers first. Okay. Yeah. Before I, I look at competitors, I need to, who, who am I talking to right at this moment? Um, they're going to tell me who my competitors are. They're going to say, Oh yes, I was looking at you and I was looking at this other company. Um, you know, we are, we do, all we do is, um, analytics, social media analytics, then we can use that in various ways, but like we are not a publishing or a listening software. Um, and so, I do have a competitive view on um, softwares that do that, even though we don't. Because when it comes to it, I have customers who are like, I have a set amount of money that I can use on tools um, because every dollar that I'm spending on a tool, I'm not spending on my advertising. And so they're looking at it as like the whole thing, what's going to bring me the value across the board. And I have to fight against that. Um and so I need to understand why they value another software, even if that software doesn't exactly do what we do. I need to understand their whole marketing tech and how we will fit in there um, and how those customers will, how those uh, companies will talk about their product um, because they may say they're doing things with their product, but they don't really do. Um, but that's what makes a customer go, oh, well, I'm going to get this one because it does these three things and yours really just does this one thing with analytics. Um, and so I need to understand that. And that is a level of it. Um, so I will generally have a set of direct competitors. These are the, the companies that do the exact same thing with their software or really close. I will have a set of relational, like they, we might get knocked off of their marketing tech list because they're going to go buy this other product. Um, and then I'll have a set of aspirational. And I mentioned that earlier of like, these are the companies that do really well. Um, they may not be competitors at all, or they may just be companies that are talking to my audience. So like I follow 
um, companies that are talking to marketers because I want to know what are they saying? What is it that's engaging um, marketers around that? So companies like Moz, we touch into SEO, but that's not that's not our bread and butter. Um, so I'm not following them to see how they're talking about SEO. I'm following them to see how they're talking to marketers. Um, same thing with HubSpot, um, not a marketing automation software, but I want to know what they're saying and what are marketers caring about um, so I can look at um, opportunities in our content strategy to insert ourselves. So do you do you spend time on the phone or on Skype with every customer? Do you send them surveys? What did you use to do this to do this research? So I actually use a combination of surveys, phone calls, and focus groups. Um, if I had more money, I would do even more focus groups. Um, those are my favorite because um, when you put marketers together and you get them to talk, they'll say things that um, you never would get them to do in a one-on-one conversation. Because the moment somebody jumps on a call with me, they want to talk specifically about rival. Um, and that's not necessarily what I want them to talk about. I want them to talk about what they're doing with their day. What are the problems they have? Um, and naturally, because they're talking to me and they see me as this representative of Rival IQ, they're going to skew their conversation that way. So when I can set up a focus group and I try to do them on a regular basis, I'm bringing in a handful of marketers. And my job is to maybe instigate conversation, but otherwise it's to sit back and just listen. And that's where I find out the most interesting things about the pains they're dealing with, the struggle they have of proving value around certain marketing activities to their executive team. Um, it's where I find out that um, they really like this software, but they can't afford it. And so how do you look at um, where we fit into budgets and things like that? But I wouldn't learn that otherwise, because generally when people talk to you and they know you're from that company, they're going to say nice things. They don't complain because they're like, oh, I have your ear. Will you give me something? Will you um, tell me something that might be helpful? How do you recruit those people? Um, that's where my network comes in. Um, so I am in a variety of groups, whether it's Slack communities, Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups. Um, and then, of course, I do um, in-person networking. Um, and so I'm always looking for potential people that would fit with um, our service and looking at, okay, can I pick your brain? Um, can I invite you to something? Um, there's always a relationship aspect to it of like, what can I give in return? Um, what can I help them with? There may be people I've met that, um, you know, I met them two years ago and I helped them find a freelance gig or something. And now I can call in them and be like, Hey, can I get 30 minutes of your time to chat about this? And they're like, yeah, sure. You helped me out. Um, so I'm always trying to, um, build relationships Because I never know where that relationship will lead to. How, how much time would you spend a week on Slack channels, Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups? Oh, uh, <laughs> um, an embarrassing amount of time. Um, I mean, that's where... So I probably spend 50% of my time throughout the week is writing. I'm doing messaging. Um, I'm writing um, articles about how customers use our product. Um, or in general, things that people should know. Um, and then the other half of that time is spent between being in meetings internally, um, strategizing and um, being out and talking to people. I mean, as a product marketer, if I don't understand our customer or a prospective customer, I can't do my job. I can't write those articles. Um, I can't write that messaging. And so it's worth it for me to invest a significant amount of time 
um, to talk to people. Fantastic. That sounds really good. So yeah, that's why I want you to dig a, a little bit more because I knew that there was something behind all of that that you did that was really valuable. So I think one of the key takeaways right here is organize focus groups, go and, and talk to people on the phones and surveys and gather this data. Then you'll have a list of direct competitors, relation, relational competitors and, and aspirational competitors that you can really put on a spreadsheet almost, right? And you don't have to guess that because from this conversation you just had, they will have told you, those people will have told you all of those, uh, this information already. So do you, I suppose you use your own software to do the competitive uh, research, right? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. yes. I'm in our software every day. <laughs> right. So <laughs> let's consider that listeners don't necessarily use it. And I'm not going to go into a sales pitch where you have to explain why it's better. It's definitely better than a spreadsheet <laughs> because it's probably easier. But let's say the people we, 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 are, we are talking to don't have a budget and, and they have to use a spreadsheet, something simple enough, right? Um, sure. So we would put all of them into a spreadsheet and then what type of information will you typically look for? So you, you mentioned a few, but I like to try to list a few important ones for people to look, uh, to, look to. Well, so first I'm going to um, start with their brand um, and their brand voice. Um, before I get into nitty gritty about like features or specific aspects, I want to know how do they talk? Um, and um, you know, certainly, as you mentioned, because of the software um, that we have, I start with social, but you don't have to start with social. You'd start on their website. Go check out what are they saying on their website. Um, most SaaS companies will have the list of industries they serve. So, you know, the customer they're going after, um, you know, for me, um, some of our competitors pretty much only go after agencies. And that's good for me to know um, because how they talk to agencies, I can dive into that. And what are they saying? Um, and then, um, you know, what's the imagery they use? What are like, what's the feeling you get from it? Um, I'm a big fan of brand archetypes. And so, um, I'll go do that and I'll take notes on the, the site and what I'm seeing and how they're talking. And then I figure out which brand voice are they using? What's that archetype, um, that they fit into? And that allows me to kind of look at the board. Um, and so for Rival Like You, I went out and looked and, um, the one that I kept seeing was the sage, the all knowing, I'm going to bring you all this knowledge. Um, and that's where we're like, okay, well, we're not going that way. Um, because everybody then starts to sound the same. Um, so I start with that. Then I'll get into some more of the nitty gritty of like specific features. What features do they care about? Like in software, we're not going to have every little feature listed on our site. That's not that's not beneficial. It doesn't help the customer. And so what are the ones that they pull out that are the big selling? How do they talk about those different features? Um, you know, when you're in competitive analysis for SaaS, um, you're generally selling the same things. Um, when I um, look at, um, we have a customer that's in um, uh, like data analysis, like big data analysis, not just social analysis. Um, and I can go look at all their competitors and they all have the same features, um, but they talk very differently. And so getting into that, what are the things that they bubble up as the most important? Um, and um, sometimes you can tell, oh, okay, did they actually talk to customers? Because that doesn't seem like that would be interesting. Um, and so you can get into that when you start to dive into what are the products they're focused on? How, how do they talk about them? And then I layer on the social. Um, so 
looking at what are the channels they're on? Um, what are they doing on those channels? Um, what's the engagement like? Like, it's great if you get on a social channel, you're like, oh my gosh, wow, they do so much video. And it like is really like, it's every day they're posting a couple times. But then you look at the engagement and you're like, oh, they get 10 likes each time. Oh, maybe that's not actually working. Maybe it's because that's not the channel you need to be on. Um, and so understanding that aspect of it um, and having that all mapped out. So, you know, um, just because your competitor is on Pinterest, um, it, it's good to know. It doesn't mean that you're going to end up there. But having that all that information um, so you have that to go back to. So let's say we have these spreadsheets full of the information you just mentioned. Um, how do you find gaps or how do you find opportunities from there? So this is where like you kind of become a little sleuth like um, you have to look for patterns. Um, and so it's not like not everybody can do it. Not everybody is really great at seeing where things are missing. Um, and part of that comes with time. As you do more of it, you start to notice things. Um, you know, you can figure out people's content strategy. You can figure out like what are the things they really care about. Um, and if they're investing a lot in, um, specific keywords, because you can tell, like you can get that sense, um, as you're looking at all of these different places and where their content lives. Um, and you can see like, okay, well, I'm probably not going to go after those keywords because that wouldn't make sense for me to directly compete on that. Um, so you start to get into some of the tactical pieces. Um, but you have to have that full picture to be able to get that knowledge. Otherwise you're, you're just going to have a spreadsheet with some stats and, Maybe it looks good to your leadership, but it doesn't actually serve your strategy. So you look for patterns, you try to see what is in common, what do they share in common, or, or, or whether or not there is anything that they're not doing, or they're, they're doing too much, or not, they're not doing well. And once you have once you have that, what's the next step? Like, do you do you create a sort of a, a story to convince management to to go uh, and to use the strategy you just came up with, or like what what will be the next step then? So for me, um, it, there's three different ways that can spin off into things. Um, so if it's early um, in my time at the company, it usually means I'm going into brand voice and I'm reevaluating um, what our organization's brand voice needs to be. Um, where are we sounding like everybody else? And we need to stop that. Um, if I'm further along in the company, it's probably content strategy. Um, you know, Content is your way to have some long-term impact, um, and it's a it's an investment, um, and so you want to make the right choices there. And if you just go copy everybody else, is that really going to help you? Probably not. So that's where like the gaps are really important to me. Um, and then I pair this with my own information. So I'm not just basing my decisions off of my um, competitive analysis. I'm pairing it with the research I've done on myself, um, and so. You know, I go back in and look at what blogs are super successful. Um, where did we get a lot of shares? What are the um, pages that do the best of converting into trials? What are the best pages that convert into customers? What do I see um, that tells me something that we need to capitalize on and pair that with my competitive analysis? And so I can see when we do a specific type of first party research, um, it, it does really well. Like that's the highest converting. It goes all the way down the funnel. I need to do more of that. And then I pair it with, okay, I see our competitors are also doing lots of reports, but they do specific 
um, across like weekly for channels. And so they're like, here's a report on Facebook that's very generic. So that might work for them. What can I do that's going to be able to compete? And so we've taken the, we're going to do specific industries. And so I've got a industry report on media, on craft brew, um, on, um, we did one, um, a few months ago on, um, Democrats versus Republicans. Like they're very, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, um, it, it was a little bit controversial. Um, it was a hack day project. Um, but it did really well. People downloaded it. It, it went down the funnel and helped us. Um, and so those are the things that I pair those, that knowledge together and those gaps to come up with a full content strategy. Well, there's a lot going on here, doesn't it? There is. I mean, product marketing is this really broad, a broad role within a marketing team. We don't just do one thing. Um, you know, I have somebody on my team that she does paid media. That is what she does. She is running ads um, and the creative alongside that. Um, and that's all she does. And that's great. We couldn't survive without her. Um, and But then you have somebody like me who's working with three different teams that has these very broad different areas that I touch. Um, and they all touch everybody else. And it helps her do her job better. I have a social media person that helps me, her do her job better. But like, it's it all has to get done. And so I end up being this kind of hodgepodge of touching customers and product and sales and looking at our competitors and understanding our content. Um, but all of it, it's all um, a big web. Like they all um, go together. So what's the best, like the most successful uh, campaign that you've, uh, that you've done in, in rival. Ooh, with rival. So um, we did this um, thing at the end of last year. It was a countdown to 2017 um, and so, you know, because we do social media analytics, um, we need to be good at social. We need to, we need to shine there. Um, if we're not shining there, then are we actually using the insight that we get from the product to, um, improve things? And so, uh, we created this, um, this 31 days, all of December countdown to 2017. Um, and it was a series of tips. There was a tip a day and there was, um, images to go with it. Um, and there was a video. So every day we had a short video with a tip. Um, and we spread it across all our social channels, um, even Pinterest, um, which we're not big in Pinterest. Um, but it's, um, it's something that we do have a presence there mostly because we want to test and see how things work. Um, but it was super successful. And so we went from an organic reach, um, uh, of, Oh gosh, I want to say it was like in the hundreds. Um, and we ended up having organic reach of like 12,000 per a post. Um, and that's like no paid, nothing behind it. Um, and so really what we got to see is how the Facebook algorithm, um, really favors video and native video specifically versus a link to a video. Um, and it was super successful. So what we did at the end of, um, December, is we stopped it because we wanted to see what would happen um, and how not doing video and not posting these things on a daily basis, how that would affect our reach. Um, and it took a week or two. It didn't take very long. And the organic reach dropped like it was like a cliff. Um, and um, and so we've uh, we've now added video back and we're now doing it on a regular basis. Um, 
But that was a campaign that we were able to use um, to engage audiences that we were not on Facebook um, and in other areas, but primarily on Facebook. Um, and we were able to um, test out the uh, algorithms that we think we know, but we don't really like have a full understanding and see that, yes, video matters. Organic video um, it is possible and you can reach more people if you play Facebook's game. Did this engagement turn into sales? Because, you know, social media is notoriously to be a, a channel, uh, channels that work really well for discovery and, and awareness, uh, but the line is a little bit blurry when it comes to sales. So what's your view on that? Oh, yes. So there's two things with that. Yes, social leads to sales. Social is our primarily, our, our leads come through social. Um, part of that might be because we target marketers who are on social. Um, and so getting them to download content from Facebook or LinkedIn, um, it's not that hard. Um, we're able to engage them. And we have different strategies for Instagram. Like Instagram is focused on sharing our culture. Um, and so more of a recruiting tool. So I don't expect to see um, people coming from Instagram to download our content. But we definitely like we see it. Um, we create these reports and we share them out. And we immediately, um, Facebook has those really great lead forms. Um, and so they don't have to leave Facebook to download a piece of content. Um, and then we nurture them through. And so we can see a, a significant portion of our uh, traffic coming through from um, social channels. The flip side is, though, we are so obsessed with attribution and being able to put everybody in a little bucket that like we have taken our data too far. Um, it used to be, um, so when I, um, I'll, I guess I will age myself a little bit here. When I graduated from college, there was no social media marketing. That was not a thing. Um, so our marketing activities were very heavy on radio or billboards or print. And you couldn't track that. You could not track and say, this person came into my store and bought this product because they saw this ad. Um, it, it wasn't something we did. Um, you, you know, definitely tracked your sales and you're like, oh, okay, we ran this campaign and then our sales went up. Um, and that was enough. Um, but now we are so obsessed with attribution and data that um, if we cannot say that this specific thing um, directly led to it, we don't want to do it. Even though if you run a campaign and you and you should be running it across multiple things, it should not just be on one channel. You should be doing something on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, as well as online. Are you following them around with display ads? Are you doing all these things? And then that is what you'll see. Like, okay, we ran this campaign and partway through the campaign, our sales started to um, creep up. Something that, that bothers digital marketers quite a lot is that they want to attribute exactly, as you said, conversions to a specific channel, but life is not like this, right? I mean, I, I, I remember talking to Laura Roder from meetedgar.com. She was saying the similar things and she was saying, think about the last time or the first time you've been exposed to uh, marketing from a brand that you bought from, you wouldn't remember it. Right. You wouldn't remember the first time you heard from them. You wouldn't remember the second, third, fourth, fifth, twenty-fifth, hundredth time. But then one day, when you're thinking about buying a competitive, you know, a social media competitive analysis tool, the first name that comes into your mind is like rival IQ. And you don't really know why, but you heard of it, you, you've seen a few ads, and that's when the brand, brand equity, the brand is so 
important. It will work in the long term. People will remember you and buy from you. But can you say that this display ad that you've done with the retargeting pixel is the thing that is responsible from, uh, for these sales? Absolutely not. And that's why exactly digital marketers are struggling at the minute with all of this data because they want to get too granular. I completely agree. Um, so that's, that's good. Uh, that's fantastic stuff. You told a lot of very in in interesting things and a few things, a few ideas that, 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 uh, that will definitely, that I will definitely nurture uh, on my own. So thank you so much for that. The last question I wanted to ask you, actually two questions. First, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next five, 10 years or 20 years? You mean in general? Yeah. I think marketers would do well to learn and invest in understanding storytelling. No matter what type of marketer you are, whether you um, are doing focused on PPC or SEO um, or you know product marketing, understanding how to tell a story um, is important. It's not just important to be able to connect with your customers, but it also allows you to sell things internally. Um, when you have leadership that maybe doesn't understand marketing or <laughs> hates it, um, it you have to sh you have to sell it to them. And the best way to sell something to somebody is telling a story. And so if you can become a good storyteller, you don't even have to be great, just a good one. Um, you're going to go far. You're going to be able to do things and try new things uh, because you can tell a compelling story about it. What are the top three resources you would recommend to people? Could be books, podcasts, anything. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm heavy into books. So I guess uh, going with the storytelling aspect, I recommend everyone read on writing well. Um, if you didn't read it in undergrad, um, you should go read it now. I want to say it's don't ask me to spell it. Um, but like, take yourself back to the basics. What is it you need to do to write good copy, to write a good email, to sell up um, to your executive team? From podcasts, obviously, I recommend this podcast. I enjoy listening to it. I also like listening to This American Life. Like, It isn't marketing related, but you can learn a lot about storytelling, about human stories, and how do you use that human element to connect with people. Like I said earlier, if you're in B2B, you're still selling to people. You need to understand those people and you need to speak to them um, based on their needs. And then I'm currently reading this book um, by Alex Pentland, Social Physics. And we talked a little bit about the creepy factor of marketing. And when you are building a community, how you design that community um, affects how people interact and how people make decisions. And in general, how we build how we're handling the web, how we're handling our um, overall communities outside of um, online activity. Um, we're changing the way we function. And so reading his book has been really interesting to me in the sense that um, we're affected by what's going on in our community more than we think we are. Um, and so when we're looking at how we market to people, we need to understand that it's not just the person sitting next to them in their office or their friend that affects their decision making. Um, it's their overall community. And so the things that happen with faith, Facebook algorithms, they matter and they affect what's going to happen um, in our local communities and our global community. And as marketers, we need to understand that. So I definitely recommend checking that book out. Well, Cassandra, you've been really great. Thank you so much for all of those insights. And I talk to you soon. Yes, thank you. 
That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always unsubscribe for sure, if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet, and we always... Uh, can improve. So you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com. Good or bad, please feel free to send me an email. And the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people would be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.